Hey, this is Jim. How you doing? Happy bonus coffee day. Okay, so what I mean by that is uh, during this whole pandemic thing, this coronavirus uh, shelter in place. Um, so I have my like my mainstay. I have my coffee, which is Phil's coffee. Go San Francisco. Go Tech. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a local uh, uh, coffee shop franchise. They're coffee roasters. I think they were over in the East Bay. Uh, but I've got a blend of theirs that's uh, hazelnut flavored coffee. I talked about it. They, they, they Trojan horse me. They don't labor, label it as hazelnut flavored coffee. It just is. And I got it one time and started drinking it. I was like, this, this tastes like a cupcake, like an unsweetened cupcake. It's delicious. It's like chocolate. So that's the, that's been my that's been my roast. But so like the the like before even before the pandemic, my my thing was wake up. I hand grind my coffee now. I have a burr mill grinder, um, and you can get electric versions of those. But I mean, most coffee grinders, you just you put the beans in, and there's a blade that just whips them up, and you know, it basically just breaks them apart. And there's not a consistency in terms of the size of the grind. Like some some beans will be larger and some will be smaller. It won't be uniform. And the downside of that is if you have bigger beans and sorry, if you have bigger grinds and low, smaller grinds, like some, like with a constant brewing length, like time interval, some of them will be over extracted, some of them will be under extracted. So you'll get some bitterness and some sort of wateriness kind of mixed together with uh, maybe just the right amount. That's what I've heard anyway. I don't, I don't know if I can taste the difference. If you, if you, Burr mill grinded some coffee um, by hand with the grinder that I use and used an old electric grinder, the kind I used to use, the, um, the ones that just have the blade. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to taste the difference between the two. Uh, I've never tried. If I had a regular grinder, I would try that. But uh, I don't, so I can't exactly do a... And I guess I, I don't, I guess living by myself right now in the middle of this whole pandemic, I can't exactly do a blind taste test. I don't know how you just mix up the glasses without you knowing which is which. Yeah, not a time for coffee science. Anyway, so for the, for the entire duration of the pandemic, I've, I've been, I just make one French press of Phil's filtered soul blend every morning and I drink that and that's it. It's all I've allowed myself. Um, but I do have some old bags of coffee stashed in the cupboards. Like I have uh, some Starbucks coffee from last Thanksgiving. And uh, yeah, I've just kind of been thinking, you know, one of these mornings I'm going to have my normal coffee batch and then I'm going to make a second French roast and just like get completely lit on coffee. I'll just have an extra French, entire French press for that day. I'll just like be wired. So I've decided to do that today. And if you heard that, I don't know, I guess you can hear the beeps, everything beeps, but the timer, yeah. So I just brewed up a second uh, French press of coffee. and I'm gonna drink that and uh, get jittery as hell.
looking forward to it. I my mom my mother doesn't drink coffee. And uh yeah, I was talking to her on the phone. I was saying like, you know, as long as you guys are sheltering in place, you got nothing to do. Uh you should try drinking some coffee. I was like, caffeine is just this psychoactive substance. Everybody just drinks probably way more of it than they should. Uh just gets it gets gets wired on it every morning. She's never done this. I was like, in the midst of this whole pandemic, you should give this a try. I was like, my my father drinks coffee and he he just does the same thing. He has like two cups every morning and that's it. That's his thing. Um but I was like, you should just you should just have dad brew like a few cups more than he really needs. Like make a few cups extra. And just one morning have like three or four cups of coffee. Like just don't go from like zero to one. Just go all the way full Monty right from the get go. And just, I was like, just line up a funny movie, line up a funny TV show, like something you can just laugh your ass off at. And I was like, just, just enjoy the day. See, see what it's like to just get wired on coffee. Like I was trying to tell her, like, you know, you should try doing mushrooms or, you know, try doing LSD. Like, take a psychedelic, expand your mind. I was like, yeah, just just have way too much coffee and watch some funny TV. Like, <laughs> anyway, she was all about it, actually. She tells me she's going to do it. I don't know if she will. I don't know if she'll, like, enjoy the experience. I don't know what it will be for her, but I don't know. Somebody who's gotten, like, almost through 70 years of their life without ever overdoing it on coffee, not even once. I like, come on, it's sick. Live a little. <laughs> so I'm kind of preparing to do that myself. Have way too much coffee. Let's see what comes out of it. Maybe that'll motivate me. Maybe I'll do more than I have been doing. I have not been I have been like being meditative, introspective, going into my own head. Like basically it's just me recording myself, talking to myself. I'm doing these things, other ones that I'm not publishing, maybe poking around online a bit, uh, picking up books here and there and reading. Still, still focused on the young, the Carl Jung. But, uh, my energies are not going into anything concrete, um, nothing outward anyway. So we will see. And I haven't even wanted to watch television. Like there's plenty of, I kind of go on like Netflix and Amazon Prime and I look around for things that I could watch. I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. You know, someday when I feel like I have two hours to waste. And I just want to watch a movie. I'll, I'll watch, you know, this. But I haven't wanted to actually watch anything. I feel like I have all this time on my hands. Uh, I got nothing to do with my days, really. Um, I'm certainly not working. But I, I can't bring myself to just sit there and waste two hours of it on a movie. I just feel like it, it feels like it would be a waste. I, I can't exactly explain why that is. It's so strange. You hold me up and just like say, here, just uh, 
get in touch with yourself. Try and like get more attuned to your own thoughts. Like television is like becoming less and less appealing to me. I, it's, I, I really, I'm having trouble even turning it on. Even for news, even for just like quick YouTube clips for levity. Like I, I don't really want, I don't know. I don't want it. Kind of wonder what my brain wants instead. I, I feel like my brain is, is, if it could yell at me, it would say like, go talk to some people, go go out, go socialize with anyone, please. Probably what it would say, I don't know. I watched a video yesterday about um, a little thing on, on, the, on YouTube by the School of Life is the name of the account. And they make videos about various things like, you know, uh, psychology, philosophy, whatever. The one I saw was, uh, the importance of dancing like an idiot. And it was released like last week. So it's very, it's very much pandemic related. They're, they're trying to like appeal to people right now. And it, it's interesting. They're talking about how like just getting up and dancing, like moving your body rhythmically is actually very healthy for you. Um, mentally seems to be something that people do in lots of different cultures and it's something we should probably embrace right now just for our own mental well-being and i was like you know it's i don't do that i've, I've never been a much of a dancer i went to dances in high school and you know you do what you have to do but uh i've yeah i've you know I've never been a good dancer. I went with a with an ex of mine to a dance, kind of a half dance class and like a half open dance, a few years ago, and both of us were just we, we were that is not that was not our strong suit. Just trying to like you tell your limbs to do this because it's the it's the move you're supposed to make. I have a lot of trouble with that. You know, when I'm doing these like high intensity training exercises from YouTube, or working out, like it's, you have to move your limbs in this way and get this pattern. It always takes me like an embarrassingly long amount of time to like get the rhythm right. Like doing side lunges on the mat. It's like, I'm, I'm okay, which leg goes in front of what? How, how is it coordinated? You know, it's like I always screw it up for like maybe, I don't know, the first like three or four minutes. It's the same thing with dancing. You're trying to like do the correct moves with a partner, you know, in front of a bunch of people. It's like for some reason I, I'm not able to translate what I'm seeing the instructor do to myself. I just can't mimic it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so bad at that. Like when you tell me like I'm driving, you're like, well, if you're on a one lane road, like, uh, it says like, Actually, you no. Know, driving is pretty easy, but uh, when I'm walking, if somebody says like, "Turn right or left," like move your right or left hand, like I have to think about which one that is. Yeah, I don't know why there's this block. I wish I was better at dancing. Like, it's what I see people who are dancing is one of their passions. They're like going to do classes, and you can see them with their partner, just all debonair. They're, they're really, uh, I don't know, doing the cha-cha or something. I'm like, this, this looks like fun. 
this, I think this would be a good pastime. You know, be physically active. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and try to dance like an idiot today. Uh, I just got to find some good music. There's a scene that I love from the Skeleton Twins, which is probably one of the better movies about depression. It's very touching. It has um, Bill Hader and is it Kristen Wiig? Kirsten Wiig? I hate those two names are terrible. I've known Kirsten's and Kristen's, and I always mess them up. I always call whoever it is by the wrong one. I don't know why I have a dyslexia about that one name. But the two of them are in this movie. They play like a pair of siblings. And um, there's a scene in there where Bill Hader is trying to cheer up his sister. So he just puts on Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, that old 80s song from uh, Mannequin. And, uh, you know, just like lip syncs it, dances around, cheers her up. I love that scene. That scene never fails to, like, make me laugh, especially Luke Wilson when he comes in. Bill Hader just puts his finger on his lips and like sort of shakes his head and walks off. It's it's so hilarious. I should probably do that. Put that song on and just like blast it. Blast it so loud that it, my neighbors can definitely hear it. Just no shame. And just bop around my place rhythmically. Singing into an invisible microphone. It's an underrated move, I think, the, the invisible microphone. Yeah, I, I would want to do that, actually. I don't really like karaoke. I have an okay singing voice and that I can, I can generally hit the notes correctly. Um, more so than some people. Like, I'm not tone deaf. And I have a decent range. Um, I'm not, I'm, I could, could not be a professional vocalist without significant practice, but I can, I can sing, uh, reasonably well. Still don't like doing karaoke. Um, I'd rather do lip syncing. Like if I could go to a bar and just, like it's like that, but you lip sync. See the words on the screen, like in front of you, you could just like mouth the words. That's got to be a thing you can go to a bar and do. I, I would like to do that. I think I'd have a lot more fun with that. I think the crowd would enjoy it more too. I'm not saying the crowd would enjoy it. They would just they would enjoy it more than if I were to attempt to sing the vocals. Oh uh, yeah, short list of things to. What can you do in a bar? That is fun. I mentioned that I had a bit brief stint where I was playing Big Buck Hunter. Um, that game where you can like shoot deer with like a, a, a gun you actually hold in front of the screen and aim it. Uh, I played that a lot. There's a barcade a couple, a couple blocks from me. I would just go there and like play that all evening until I got tennis elbow. I just couldn't play anymore. I would just try and beat the high scores, try and beat my own high scores if I was playing back around. I love that game. 
Um, yeah, and sometimes I was hogging the machine. Like, I would just sit there and play. When it got busy, there'd be people, like, waiting behind you for their turn. And I would I would generally, like, there was no other game in the place I really wanted to play, but I would sometimes just wander away from the machine, let other people have a turn. Because they wouldn't stay there for hours. They would just play for a while and then leave. And I'd go right back to it and just wander around for a bit. And then when it got vacated, I'd go back. But people, people would stop behind me and like watch me play. And I got, if you're going to hog a machine, the best thing you can do in an arcade, you're just going to park yourself is at least give people a show. And I found that I, I definitely did that. People would like watch me and they'd be like, damn, you are good. Like I'd hear people whispering like this guy is, I'm not sure that's something to be proud of. I'm certainly not bragging. But, uh, you know, like if I were smart, I would be investing all this energy and time and money for that matter. It's not a, not the cheapest game you'll find in the place, uh, into something less fleeting. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. People seem to like watching me play because I would just, play those little bonus games like you have to shoot pumpkins that are popping out of the back of a hay you know wagon like i could just shoot all of them before they even like you know they had they fly up into the air and then they arc and then they fall back down and they hit the cement you have to shoot them before they hit the cement i would hit them before they even before they all arced so as they're just popping off the truck and leaping into the air i could get all of them without missing a single one before they even like begin their downward descent towards the ground. Yeah. Again, not, not bragging. People seem to like watching that, but I mean, the downside of that is that there, there's a certain kind of bar, not necessarily a barcade that stocks that sort of game. Like typically there are sports bars. And, uh, yeah, those are not the kind of bars I like to frequent, given my druthers. Uh, it's like a, a sports bar up by Union Square that has a big buck hunter machine. I just, I just go in there, play it. I just, I try not to look at anything else. I just go in and walk right to the machine, start playing. And, uh, yeah. But yeah, so I, I think darts. I would like to find a. I don't actually know where you can play darts in the city. I've I've been talking to some. I've been talking to a girl from Bumble. Just we've been texting. Uh, just about whatever here and there throughout the day. Uh, she says she knows where the best place in the city to play darts. I haven't actually asked her where that is, but. I should probably ask her just before like the conversation thread dies. So I'll know it's never really going to happen. Like it, it, yeah. We've been talking about like someday after this all blows over, we'll meet, but this is the downside. I kind of was like, well, I could, I could meet some people on the dating apps just to like have conversations. But I don't know with that expectation in at least their minds, uh, like, 
I don't, I don't know who's interested in me or who isn't. I don't, some of it might be, let's just have conversations during this pandemic thing. But, uh, you know, you can't count on any of those things lasting. I certainly don't have a very strong texting game. That's how you get to know me. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that, not that impressive. Which is okay. I would rather not be thought of as a very good texter. That's not a skill I need to, to, I'm not going to be on my deathbed thinking, at least I texted. I texted all those people. This is not how you improve other people's lives. It's not how you connect with people. Anyway, yeah, I want to know where you play darts in the city. Where is good, where is a good venue for playing some, like, some cricket? I want to get out there. And play the goddamn cricket to my heart's content. I should take that up. That'd be the first thing I do after this pandemic is over. Go join a dart league. There's a ping pong hall, like a few blocks north of me, actually, like maybe five blocks up. There's there's like this big place. I I I passed it for a while, not knowing what it was. It's on the other side of the street, and it's. I never had a reason to go over there, but it's this big hall, which is just ping pong tables. It's like a ping pong club. I think you pay like a monthly fee or something, a weekly fee. You can pay like an entry fee um, uh, on your average night. Yeah, so the like ping pong hall, people are going in there and playing that. It's always packed, on, especially on the weekends. Okay, gonna try this this other kind of coffee. It's been so long since I've had just a regular coffee. I've dreaded getting away from the hazelnut flavor. Let's see how this Thanksgiving blend is or holiday blend, whatever it is. Mmm, smells like burned. Smells like burnt water. Smells like coffee is supposed to smell. This is going to be definitely an exercise in perspective. I'm going to wake up tomorrow appreciating the coffee. I typically drink all the more. Still trying to figure out what I do today. Dance like an idiot. That is for goddamn sure. Um, I used to have an electric dartboard. I think I left that at, uh, at the company I used to work for in Southern California. Before I moved out, before I left, I took that into work and just left it somewhere random in the, in the office. I, that was a nice dartboard. That was, I paid a pretty penny for that in college. Just one you hang on the wall. It keeps score for you. Uh, yeah, I wish I had held on to that. I wish I had that now. It would be nice to have something like that to play. Yeah, maybe just, maybe just temporarily. 
I'm certainly not that good. I, I used to play on a dart league when I was in college, and I used to be quite adept at playing cricket. I used to be good. I like to tell the story that I almost pulled a 300 in cricket. I told my brother that, and he was like, what the hell does that mean? Um, and I was like, I, I guess that's a fair question. This was actually a time when I was, this was in college, very late at night. I think we had gotten to the bar where I used to play darts routinely. It was this little dive bar in Pontiac, Michigan, like just, just in the middle. Of, it was like right off of M59, if you know where that is. It's like just very, it's somewhere between like downtown Pontiac and like you're getting into like redneck country, like somewhere in that stretch where people are boating and um, this little tiny bar that we were always at and they had a couple of dart machines, like electronic dart machines. And, um, yeah, we came back late one night, like last call was two o'clock. So it was like one fifteen in the morning. Somebody challenged us to a game and we, we had been elsewhere, like in downtown Pontiac, like at the clubs or something. I was quite inebriated, like definitely three sheets to the wind. And somebody challenged me to a game. And uh, so I, I basically like the first turn, I went first. Um, I hit a trip 20, then a trip 19, and then trip 18. Next turn, the guy didn't hit anything. Uh, next turn, I hit a trip 17, trip 16, trip 15. I don't, I don't remember if the guy hit anything after that, but the third turn. Okay, so I've closed out everything but the bullseye. I hit a double bullseye on my first dart, and then I missed the bullseye the next two. So close. So close. If I had gotten one bullseye, that, that would have been basically a complete shutout. There would have been, there's no way you could play a better game than that. Um, but I didn't quite do it. That was the only time I came close. I happened to be uh, pretty sloshed when I did that. I never even came close when I was dead sober. It was, um, yeah, just a freak thing. Although I, I was pretty well practiced at that time. I was able to hit the dartboard. Uh, like, it was pretty pretty accurate. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, I, it just was a, wasn't just some miracle the spirit moves through me but uh but yeah uh darts you're gonna force me to sit in the bar somewhere and i gotta find my gotta occupy myself darts are one of those things uh pool i wish i were better at pool i wish i had access to a pool table where i could go just um yeah practice practice tricks. Um, yeah, never been, never been terribly good at that. It's also drinking, which I don't do so much anymore, but that's kind of a sport, I guess. I guess you can kind of, I guess you can kind of do that competitively. Oh, 
oh, I've been spoiled. This, this, the Starbucks coffee is just not, uh, it's not up to snuff. Oh. Well, no one ever said that getting, uh, getting jittery on a psychoactive substances was easy. So bottoms up. Actually, it's kind of tasty. I'm actually not that particular when it comes to coffee. I was talking about the whole grind thing. Like you have an even grind, so you don't over or under extract the beans. What the hell do I know? I'll go into a diner in the morning. I'll order like a your typical diner breakfast and give me like the, the coffee. Like the Folgers stuff that's just been sitting on a burner for hours. Coming out of those little diner coffee jugs. Uh, I do like that stuff. You just put some, some of those creamers in there. Oh, yeah. I like the taste of that, you know. Although I'm not sure at that point you're like sitting there like sipping it and appreciating the taste. I think it's just. Yeah. It's getting the job done, whatever it is. I do wonder, like everybody, it seems like everybody I've ever talked to who tries coffee for the first time, it's like a lot of adult vices, like, you know, coffee, alcohol. Like you, you try it and you're just like, you know what? I don't like this, but somehow you like force yourself to return to it or circumstantially you have to and you just get used to it. And I wonder if it's just the, the brain being trained to like this, like, ooh, caffeine. Because, I mean, caffeine is not something we're supposed to consume. Uh, caffeine, like, evolved as, as a mechanism for plants to like, ward off predators. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a toxin or the neurotoxin for like insects that might feed on plants. So plants evolved this chemical defense system. It's like, if you're going to eat me, I'm going to mess up your brain. That's what caffeine is supposed to be. We just, we, we brew it up in water every morning and drink it and yeah, mess up our brains and then go about our days. Cause we, we have larger nervous systems and probably slightly different nervous systems than insects do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, same thing with alcohol. If you try like, uh, giving alcohol to like a dog, you put down like a bowl of vodka, they just take a look at it and they're like, no, they take one sniff. Like I'm not, I'm not drinking whatever the hell that is. That is, that is poison. That is bad for me. Ricky Gervais has a, a thing in his, um, Stand-up routine in humanity. Now streaming on Netflix. Yeah. There's a plug. Uh, he says, like, one thing he would ask God is, why exactly did you make chocolate toxic to dogs? I had a dream about that last night. I remember, like, that, that came up. Like, I saw Ricky Gervais, like, in an elevator, and he was, like, he was using... Both, you know what, it doesn't matter what the hell the dream was. I'm not going to go into that. But I remember thinking in the dream, like, it's, it's, it's dangerous for dogs because we take something that is toxic to them. We load it up with sugar so that it's appealing to the palate. And then we have it around 
dogs. It would be like if, if there was something that was toxic to us, like something laced with arsenic that would kill human beings. But people around us just load whatever that is with sugar and package it up in a way so that it's appealing. Like we would look at it and be like, I want to eat that. Just left it lying around. I know it's ty- like theobromine is the um, is the lethal substance. I wonder. If, I don't know if it's toxic to cats. Can cats eat chocolate? Huh. Anyway, yeah. So that's. And then there's Maud. Yeah, I haven't. Back to the darts, thinking about that that summer. That was the summer I had just turned 21. So it was like, hey, we can all go to bars and legally buy drinks for the first time. We'd done that in Canada before, me and some of my friends. The thing is that growing up in Detroit, you're right across the river from Canada. Now, if you go across, if you cross the border, uh, the drinking age, the gambling age, was 19. And I think they've started to crack down on this now. Like if you're if you're an American, I, I don't know if you can still do this, but you, you were 19 or 20, you could go over into Canada, and you could go into the casinos and gamble, and drink, and buy Cuban cigars, the stuff you could do you couldn't do in America, in the United States quite yet legally. You could go over there and just do it. You could go over there and live like an adult. Um, so there were a few times that we went over and, um, yeah, just go into the casino and uh, order drinks. Uh, I remember that being very, very surreal. You just go into a place you start feeding money into a machine that might give you winnings, like a slot machine or something. And you could just order a drink. And uh, yeah. Like there's, the first time you do that, it's like some part of you is saying, this shouldn't be, like this is something I've seen other people who are older than me do in movies. This doesn't feel like, this feels alien. It's like trying to, I don't know, drive for the first time. It's like something you're familiar with, but only from an outsider's perspective. It's, it's weird to like be stepping into those shoes for the first time and doing it. And I, I remember not liking the gambling so much. I remember like sitting down at a machine. I don't remember what it was, video poker or something, and just playing a few rounds and thinking, where is the fun in this? Like, I'm kind of enjoying myself. Like, it'd be nice if I won, but I don't know if I'm getting this many dollars worth of enjoyment out of it. Uh, as we're doing it, I, I, like, I didn't see the appeal. I enjoy being able to go into a bar and get a uh, get a cocktail. But I mean, that was the first time I ever really, I remember going into like a club and it was a couple stories tall at least. They would go up on an upper level on the roof and we're looking down at the street and there's a bar across the street. 
So we're in this massive club that's just filled with people getting drunk and dancing. And it was the same shenanigans across the street. You could see this club, just people pouring in and out, you know, multiple levels of just drunken debauchery. And it was weird, like being in that for the first time and then kind of looking out and seeing it happen somewhere else. Like you're looking, you're looking in on it from within it. And it just seems so weird. I was like, why human beings do this? This is just something we do. We go, and I, I had been in college for a year at that point, but I, I kind of accepted it. Like, yeah, I was no, I was no stranger to going out and imbibing at parties, but I, I was kind of a stranger to like going out to a, a bar where you, you don't know the people that you're visiting. It's just, it's just someplace you go to. The whole thing felt very surreal. It, it felt weird. I, I don't know exactly how to explain it. I was like, this seems, I don't know, just because I wasn't used to it. Eventually I got used to it. You stop, you lose that perspective pretty quickly. It's like, okay, well, I'll, you know, let's keep going to bars. It just becomes something you do. But it, it felt so unnatural to me. And some sort of, there was some inclination in me. I was like, you know, this is, there has to be like a, a cap on this. Like I remember, I, I listened to like typical teenage bands. Like I listened to Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson. My favorite band for a time was the Smashing Pumpkins. And I remember, I remember going to like some place to stand in line for tickets to, for, I, th- I think it was a Nine Inch Nails concert. And there are people there who like are, they're there to see some other show. It was a band from the eighties, maybe the seventies. I don't remember who it was getting tickets. Basically the, the sales opened up for the two shows at the exact same time. We're waiting around for the, the tickets to go on sale. And they were, they were much older. They were like people who were, I was in high school wearing like a jeans and a t-shirt dressed all in black or some whatever I was dressed in. And there were people dressed roughly the same as me with ponytails in like their early forties coming in and like getting tickets to these shows. It was like the middle of the day. We had to like ditch school to like go. It was like, like, well, shouldn't you guys be at work? I just remember looking at that, seeing these people who were like 20, 30 years older than me dressed just like me. And I was like, you know what? I've got to make a mental note here someday. Make a point of growing the hell up. And I don't want to sound like I'm crazy. If you like, if you have a passion for some band that you loved when you were a teenager and you're, you're still like following them around, you'll never miss one of their shows. More power to you. I don't want to, I don't know. I, I, I think that's fine. I, I just remember thinking, this is not what I want for myself. Like I was, I want my brain to be like, I want to lean into neuroplasticity. I don't want to be listening to the same music uh, that I listened to when I was a kid, when I'm in my thirties and forties. Like I want to be discovering new things, you know, not like I'm trying to stay young forever. Not like I'm going to go to the shows and be like, Hey, friends, you know, isn't it great? We're all into 
whatever the hell kids are listening to nowadays. I don't even know. Try just maintain a receptivity to new music, new experiences, and don't obsess over one thing from the past. There's like one exception to that. I'll listen to my guy is Devin Townsend. I'll listen to him. Yeah, I'll go see him. But he's he's just like one part of my life. It's like if there was a, uh, I don't know, a traveling circus, for example. And given him, given the, the, the zany nature of his music and his live shows, that's probably an apt comparison. There was a circus that came into town that I really liked. Like, I'd go see it. I'd enjoy it. But then, you know, I'd, I'd, my life would resume as normal the next day. And, you know, if, if, he, if I happen to catch him when he comes into town next time, like, okay, great. But it wouldn't be like, I, I, I love this. I'm focused on the music of this one person. And uh, that... Uh, is defining. I don't know, never really, never really had that um, desire. Yeah, the point is, you just planned obsolescence, you know, just accept that. Well, I don't know. There's a point in time in all of our past, I think, where we kind of freeze ourselves and we're like, this is a restore point. I want to get back to this point someday. Life is perfect. You know, like a video game, you say, like, let's save progress here in case I die. I can jump back to that. Conceptually, we lock up some part of ourselves, you know, and say, like, here's the restore point I'd like to get back to. Here's where I've peaked. I'm sure that's 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 point is somewhere in my past that I'm like, I don't know, trying to recreate it somehow. My green light again, my rosebud. Uh, but it definitely, it definitely does not circle around music. Um, yeah, or hanging out in, hanging out in bars and, uh, and drinking and dancing. Not my thing. But, uh, yeah, Canada. People used to tell me, okay, so here's, here's a one idea. I told my mom this and she was like, kind of like, oh, that's, you did that? And I was like, no, I never did this. Just an idea somebody somebody told me about once. But uh, so, of course, you can go over to Canada and buy alcohol if you are if you were 19. You couldn't buy it in the United States, but you could go over and buy a bottle of But you couldn't bring it back. Like if you were at customs, not 21, and trying to bring alcohol back into the United States, you'd get in some trouble. Some being probably an understatement. It's not, you You don't want to get caught doing that sort of thing. So somebody told me you can do is go over there, buy mouthwash, or take empty bottles of mouthwash with you and fill them up with vodka and a little bit of creme de menthe, maybe some peppermint schnapps. Basically, you, you make it look and taste and smell exactly like mouthwash, just very minty. And then you can bring those bottles of mouthwash back. Like, you couldn't fill up a trunk, but I think that might send it some flags. If it was like, we just have a whole bottle of scope, just a trunk full of bottles of scope. And like, it's just filled wall to wall. Like, you can't do that. But you could probably, 
have a couple bottles and maybe a bunch of toiletries. It's like, yeah, that's just there because we camp a lot, you know. It'd be a way of like smuggling liquor into uh, back into the United States. You could drink. Um, I, I, like I said, I never did that. Um, I remember I tried to like do that to conceal it from my parents. Like I wanted to like have booze in college when I was living with my parents, and it wasn't legal for me to to purchase it and own it yet. So of course there was a a kibosh on that. Um. So, you know, I bought some creme de menthe, some peppermint schnapps and vodka. And I remember I really, I did not mix them correctly. The thing is, you don't need much creme de menthe. Like, if you look at scope, it's like green, but it's very, very light green. It's mostly translucent. And creme de menthe is very, very dark green. So I didn't even really think about it. I didn't, like, plan it. I just dumped, I, I dumped, like, I filled half of the bottle, like the, the scope bottle with creme de menthe, this dark green. I was like, okay, well, I'll dilute it down to the lighter green by pouring in some peppermint schnapps and vodka. And I did that. And it was still just this extremely dark green you could not see through. It looked nothing like mouthwash. Not even close. Like, if you looked at it, you'd be like, that's creme de menthe. Maybe it's like cough syrup. Like, it looked, they looked like NyQuil. I just, I was like, well, uh, you know, I don't know how I can fix this. I kind of screwed this up. I don't have a whole lot of bottles to like adjust the, um, you know, I can't play chemistry set here and fix it. So I just, I just stuffed it under the sink and like, nobody, my parents never found it. They never said like, Hey, we found this really sketchy looking bottle of mouthwash. Uh, explain yourself. Kind of makes me think I, I probably could have just taken I probably could have just put bottles of liquor under the sink. You know, I probably could just filled like a, a mouthwash bottle with scotch, like this clear brown liquid looks nothing like any kind of mouthwash. And I, I don't think any, my parents are not going under the, where, where has he got the liquor hidden? They had a liquor cabinet. My parents still bring this up to this day. Um, but uh, they they had a liquor cabinet, which was mostly just stuff that we, you know, our, my grandparents passed away, and so they they have they have some booze. We just kind of like acquired booze from various places. It was just the leftovers from other people's liquor cabinets, and my parents had some from back when they used to drink. They they never were big drinkers. Um, but so my brother and I got wise to this, like that we had they have this massive liquor cabinet. And they really never touch it. And it's just there in our house. Uh, so we're like, okay, this is definitely a resource we ought to take advantage of. It was when I was in college and when my brother was in high school. Um, I never drank in high school. He started drinking in high school. So it was around the same time we both sort of discovered this and thought, yeah, we can't buy booze, but there's plenty of it right here. And we both knew that my dad was like fastidious enough and like enough of a disciplinarian. He was just suspicious enough that like, like, you know, he's probably marked these bottles like in some way, like he knows the levels of the things. Uh, so what we would do is we, we, we'd mark them our own way. 
pour out what we wanted to drink and then fill them up with water back to the level they were at. So, you know, at, at a glance, you came back and you're checking, uh, you're checking the liquor bottles. Like if, if he had a system of monitoring us that way, it wouldn't immediately arouse suspicion. And so my brother and I both did this independent of each other. Like we didn't actually know uh, that we were doing it. And eventually we, we talked to each other about it. like, oh yeah, that we are wondering why that tasted kind of watery. Like, <laughs> and, you know, we, we, of course we started coordinating, but we kept doing it. And, you know, we'd, we'd go back to the same bottle more than once. So you're getting this more watery version of it. Anyway, my parents didn't drink that much, but many years later, my brother and I were both out of college and had moved out of the house. My parents went back to the liquor cabinet and they were, they, they, they poured themselves things and they were drinking them. They were like, this tastes awfully watered down. And this is, yeah, this is something my parents still bring up. They're like, yeah, we figured it out. You guys were totally swiping liquor they didn't they don't care they, they thought it was funny they they joke about it it's a it's a running joke now like the kids kids were like you know watering down our booze and drinking it when they were uh, in college yeah this is it's maybe as rebellious as i go I used to work at a landscaping company when I was 21 and my coworkers would, would, uh, like there, there was a big truck that had like two 15 gallon, uh, containers, if you will, that would hold fuel. And they would carry around five gallon, uh, gas cans in their trunk. And when nobody was around the truck, when it was unguarded, everybody was out working, uh, they would fill up the gas cans um, and then later figure out a way of putting them into their car. It was basically a way of stealing gasoline. Um, yeah, and they used to, they, they wouldn't coordinate this with each other. So there were some days where like two or three of them would do it and it would basically tap out the entire gas can at a time and the, the foreman were like what the hell they just assumed the people at the headquarters where they were parking the truck overnight that they were stealing the gasoline so it never occurred to them that the workers were doing it um yeah it just reminds me of the uh, of the alcohol i actually tried to do that once like i got one of those gas cans i filled it up and like put it in my trunk I didn't prop it up very well, so it ended up like falling over and a bunch of gas leaked over and into the trunk of the car that I had at the time. And I, I don't think I realized at the time how dangerous that was. I was just driving around with like, like I tried to like sop it up a little bit. I, I took the gas can out and uh, yeah, it was just, there were just fumes of, of gasoline in the back of my, like I was just driving around like that for I don't know how long super dangerous like i bet anything had happened they would have yeah not something you want to be doing follies of 21 year old mind
I could definitely talk about that landscaping gig. That was, that was something. Now I won't go into that, but uh, it was a fun summer. Summer of 69. I keep having inclinations to go do things. I think I've, I've pretty much tapped myself out as far as like being able to sit around like, I, I don't want to watch TV. I don't want to read. I don't want to, like, listen to podcasts. So, like, the options that I have available to me, it's like I, I've i kind of exhausted them. And my brain's like, you should go out and do this. Like, I keep thinking, like, oh, yeah, today I'll go out. And, like, I still haven't just gotten it through my thick skull. Just part of my general knowledge and understanding, like, just ingrained. That, you know, you can't go anywhere. You have no option to go anywhere right now. You you might, you can dream, but you can't go anywhere. This would be a good time to become an active dreamer. I have been trying to like, just passively document my dreams. Like, what am I dreaming about? What could it mean? And why does it mean anything? Um, but yeah, being able to control your, I think I've talked about this before. Is it lucid dreaming? Lucid dreaming is when you realize that you were dreaming before you wake up. Like you realize in the dream. Active dreaming is when you, you figure out how to control it. That's like the superpower we all need right now. We just create our own VR worlds in our heads and just live them. Someday. I'm trying to figure out exactly why I'm into like actual hard copies of books. Yeah, like I, to be honest, I I would be a perfect nomad. I could be a vagabond and just travel anywhere and own next to nothing. If it wasn't for like, if I could just have a Kindle or an iPad or some sort of tablet, it has like a you know, Kindle app on it, and that just has all the books I own on it. I could just carry it anywhere with me, numerous devices. If that was sufficient, that would simplify my life tremendously. I have so many, God, I have like books that are just sprawling. I have like, and I need to have like the physical book. I don't know why, but I, I, I just can't sit with an e-reader and have the same experience. It's not even close. I don't know why. I don't know if it's like something because I got used to reading books. I grew up reading books. Like it's just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. There's a marketing um, writer on marketing named Seth Godin who I got into for a while. Yeah, I really liked Seth Godin. He was amazing to me. And it wasn't, it wasn't because he wrote about marketing. That sounds incredibly boring. Like, you, know, you could read Philip Kotler, any of his opinions on marketing. Like, that's not entertaining stuff. Seth Godin was always much more. What he did, the effect he had on me was to spark my imagination. I think I was kind of stuck in a rut at the time, at least mentally. And he was just writing these little books that were so easy to digest and just throwing out like 
ideas. You know, what about this? What if you look at the world this way and you built this to accommodate it? And uh, he would just do that, just throw out these ideas. I was like, it really like I, I would read that and I would go walking away and I'd, I'd start having a bunch of my own ideas. It was like catalyzing creativity in my brain. And I, I, I doesn't have that effect on me now. Like I feel like that, that, that uh, stretched my brain a certain way. It developed those muscles, and now I have them. And I think I just I don't notice them quite as well because they're just they're just you internalize that sort of thing. You stop paying attention. Like I have ideas, but uh, you know it doesn't strike me as. I don't know what the source is. It's been so long. I loved Seth Godin for that reason. Um, just his writing was so inspiring. That's what I need. I need somebody who I can read and it inspires the imagination. I think that's why I'm reading Carl Jung now. It's, it's speaking to me in that way. Just it makes the brain generative. That new ideas. Those are the most valuable sources of information. But yeah, Seth Godin gave a presentation once, which I has been removed and I can no longer find, but it was about his way of marketing books. Because he, he started off as an entrepreneur, founded a company, sold it to Yahoo, cashed out, and you know he's now, he has the resources now to basically do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to be working, but he, he is. He's sort of like started writing books, became a public figure. And... It was interesting. The talk was fascinating because he writes books on marketing and he tried to like whatever marketing principle he was writing about in any given book, he would try to market the book using that way in sort of the self-referential fashion. So he wrote one called Purple Cow, which was saying you, you should make your product, you should distribute it or sell it in such a way so that it creates conversations. Like it's so outrageous and noticeable just by virtue of what it is, it will market itself. And so apparently he, he initially released that. He sent the first, I don't know how many thousand copies to people. He had a milk carton. So they'd open a milk carton and pull the book out. And he said he did that because if you see a milk carton on someone's desk, like in someone's office, you're going to ask about that. You see a book, you don't. You don't make a comment about that. You just you just say, oh, there's another book on somebody's desk. If you see a milk carton, it's this crazy purple color. You're going to ask about that. You're going to say, well, what is that? What is this book? Who is it? And I mean, I thought that whole talk was fascinating. It was very eye-opening. Like just about anything, just about anything Seth Godin said that I was, I was, it pretty much blew my mind. It was like marketing practically in the real world, you know, um, wasn't like the marketing class I had in college, which was, yeah, more stuffy, closer to like read the textbook by Philip Kotler. But uh, he said in this talk a, a point that I've never forgotten, and that's the, the concept that books are souvenirs. And the analogy he used was like if you if you walk through a a bookstore and you stop and like look at a book like what is it you're drawn to 
the things you were drawn to most to where you like heard of the book, heard of the author, heard of an idea in the book. Like it's very, very difficult to say, okay, here's how we're going to design a book and the cover and put a blurb on the back. And on the strength of that, somebody's going to buy it. It's like, no, that's the, the real marketing, the real salesmanship in selling a book takes place long before the customer ever reaches the bookstore. And, and he used the analogy of Disneyland. He said the, the point of, they don't open up Disneyland and say, okay, let's open up some gift shops and, you know, push the merchandise, try and get people to buy the Mickey Mouse hats. The point was you, you make a, you build a theme park, you build an experience for people. It's so magical and so wonderful that they come away from it thinking, yeah, you know what? This was great. I want a souvenir. They'll stop in the gift shop. It's like you create the theme park and the experience, the phenomenology of Disneyland, and then merchandising just takes care of itself. Trying to sell a book, like just releasing it into bookstores and saying, here, go buy it. And that's the extent of what you do. For most books, that is not sufficient. That's just, that is just merchandising without any novelty that makes the merchandise appealing. So he said, as a, as a publisher, that's more or less what you're doing. People have to be, have to be sold on the idea. They have to feel like they're buying a souvenir. Like it's, it's part of a larger experience than just consuming the book. People want to buy books that their friends are reading, for example, want to read the things that may help you self-actualize. Um, anyway, that always stuck with me. And I always thought that that applied to the music industry as well. It's like, how do you, how do you make your music about something more than just the music, more than just performance theater? You know, how do you, how do you create that? I don't know that that kind of sort of fire in someone's head around what it is you are doing. Now, honestly, anything I've tried to tackle since then, I've, I've tried to put that principle in the prior. I've tried to apply that as much as I can. The one book that I have published, which was a tech book, um, I didn't do that. I think if you're a writer, if you're going to try and release a book, the first challenge is to build an audience. You should be building an audience around the subject of the book or the theme of the book long before you um, write the book and release it and publish it. I think that's the challenge. I think you, you, if, you're, if you want to be a writer, and I've thought about this, I've thought about doing this, although I don't know, I don't know what subjects I would pick. Pick some topics, create a few different blogs, and start writing about them, and see which one gets traction. I mean, if there is, if there really is a subject you have that people start to pick up on, they subscribe and they want to hear from you. If an audience does congeal around something that you would like to write about, and they seem to be interested in what you have to say, there you go. That's the, that is what you write a book about. You don't set out to write a book. You don't say, I'm going to write this this story. It's like if you look at something like Fifty Shades of Grey, 
um, that started off as what Twilight fan fiction online. It picked up and it's like, okay, well, let's 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 make this into a, let's make this into a book or Saturday Night Live to use a less slightly subversive uh, topic. Um, you know, they they would they would take the sketches that seem to have a kernel of something that was very very popular and appealing, and you know, stretch the idea into an entire movie, which often worked to very great effect. Blues Brothers. Or maybe was um, stretching a concept a little bit too thin. Met at the Roxbury. But I think that's ultimately what you want to figure out a way of, of very cheaply and quickly testing new ideas. And the ones that work, you want some way of figuring that out and uh, to, you know, making it so an audience can congeal around those things. One thing, the other thing that I learned from Seth Godin, this is this was this was mind blowing at the time, even though it is, I think, pretty obvious, is the idea that you really can't copy anyone else and find your way to success. He used the example of a flock of birds. There, it's harder for the the bird who's in in front; they have to lead and they they have to take on all the wind resistance. And if you watch them, you'll see like. The head bird, they, they take shifts, they trade that, not just one bird the whole time. But that's the hardest position to be in, uh, to break new ground. And what a lot of people do is they wait until somebody else breaks ground and they say, oh, yeah, we can we can move into that space. And like, uh, you know, now that somebody else has built the market, we'll just go in and capitalize on it. And you do see that being a first mover doesn't always have its advantage. You can be a first mover, establish a market and completely screw it up. Like if you don't do everything right, somebody else can come in and just steal your lunch. As I think the, uh, I think the expression people use in business, you, you certainly see that. I mean, what was Friendster? What was MySpace other than just paving the way for what Facebook would later become? What, what Facebook now is. I mean, Friendster was a very novel concept. It was a very, uh, very good idea, but in, in the details, they didn't quite pull it off. Ah, there's a, there are a couple of workers out on my terrace right now. They're washing the, the windows. I knew that they were coming to do that this week. I didn't know when. Got to say, I feel like running out there right now and just hugging them. Like human beings. Hello. Got to make note of everything they're touching out there. I uh, can't touch those things myself. Ah, yeah, okay. I may have overdone it with the coffee today. Just really feel... You know, the best part about being sick, you get the flu for a long time. Too soon to talk about this? You get the flu, like, you're you're just basically out for, you never feel like drinking coffee. Getting back to the whole, like, it's a toxin. When, you, when you're sick, when your immune system is compromised, the last thing you want to do is drink any coffee. Um, 
like, see, you don't drink it. And then when you get well, you get back to a point where you're like, okay, I got to start getting back to normal life. Like drinking coffee again for like the first time after you've been off of it for a week. Oh, it's the best. I thought about doing that. I thought if there was a time to stop drinking coffee and just like zenify yourself, uh, I was like, it could be a good use of the shelter in place. I may still do that. Originally, it was like three weeks. And now here we are going into week, I don't know, eight, four more weeks to go at least. I was like, I, you know, I, you basically, like you, you, you have very few like sources of joy right now. I was like, I don't want to give up the you wake up and you have your coffee. It's like, I want that to be the one thing I can count on as part of my routine. Like whatever happens. However, my interests shift, you know, I'll uh, keep up the coffee. I was pretty insistent on maintaining the habit. Uh, yeah, but um, I don't know. May not be a bad idea to. Uh, Yeah, may not be a bad idea to um, do that here. Maybe just give it up for a while. Seems like that would be a pretty tough withdrawal. I'll just like taper myself off of it. And then, uh, yeah, jump back into it. I don't know. We'll see. college where was I yeah so the, the first car I ever owned was actually left to me and it was left to my family by my grandfather my father's side they had a little cabin out in Colorado and so there was a there was a vehicle they just kept there uh, just to have in color like they didn't it just was basically on the property up in the mountains in Colorado, very, very remote. It was like, we used to go up and visit them and it was the kind of place where everything was powered by a generator out back. So at night it was like, it was bedtime. It'd be like, okay, everybody get your flashlights and get in bed. Okay, everybody's down. I'm gonna go out and kill the power for the night. This is it. No more artificial light except for the flashlights until next morning. Um, and it was out, it was out in the woods. It was very, very remote. I think it was at up at about 9,000 feet. Like the air was definitely noticeably thinner up there. The kind of place, um, you know, athletes might go to train. Rarefied air. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, it was an experience. I, we never went there in the wintertime, but apparently they all, my parents, before I was born, my parents went up there and they were, my grandparents were there and they got snowed in. And they had to like hike down through the snow, which would have been a, like down to like a public place where they could get water because the water was frozen. They had to like go carry their own water back up. It's just, yeah, I never had to. I don't know, survive in any kind of situation like that. 
course, they were all snowed in, so they couldn't they couldn't leave. But on that property, they had a a very very old Land Rover, like a 1966. I think it was a Series 2A. One of those like white boxy cars. If you if you were to go on safari in Africa, you might expect to see it over there, like on the savanna, You're cruising around like hunting lions or something. Uh, it was basically that. And so my dad took it and parked it in our driveway. And at some point it was, it was like, hey, you know, you can, um, you can take this car. We came to some arrangement and it was like, this is the one you can use. And it was, um, yeah, that thing stuck out like a sore thumb. You're driving around like suburbia, all these big houses, and you're just in this big aluminum box with like off-roading tires on it. <laughs> just, I used to get looks in that. And I, like I, at the time I had my uncle's, my uncle had a bunch of pipes they left behind, like tobacco pipes, wooden ones, like Sherlock Holmes. Not uh, not the Sherlock Holmes one. I forget the kind he had exactly. But they were like, you know, wooden pipes. I used to just, I used to like smoke those. I'd put some tobacco in and just like, so I would cruise around town with this pipe hanging out of my mouth. And I'm in this safari aluminum box. Yeah, he's, he's, he must have looked so weird. This, this teenager just... Well, I was in college at the time. It was like, uh, it was like 20. But that, yeah, that was my primary mode of transportation. It was a stick. Uh, and yeah, it maxed out at like 55 miles an hour. You could maybe push it to 60, but I wouldn't have driven it that, uh, you know, long. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have driven for that, for that long at that speed. I just wouldn't have trusted the car to be able to handle that. And, uh, yeah, that it didn't even have air conditioning. What it had was these little panels, like these little like things you could open up, like these flaps that you could put up and there were screens that would just let air blow in. And there were screens that would keep the bugs from like flying and it would basically trap any debris. That was the air conditioning. Just, just open up some holes and let the air blow in. Very basic too. It was the kind of car where if you, um, I think it was designed by the British, actually. I mean, the steering wheel was on the right side, but, uh, it was the kind of car that was old enough. Like it was way before computers. So you could open it up and the way a car traditionally worked, I mean, that was what was under the hood. You had four cylinders, you know, um, crankshaft, a camshaft, a timing belt. The oil worked in there somehow, an air filter. The basic components. You basically didn't have to be like a a hardware engineer who knows computers to like open up the damn thing or hook it up to a computer and diagnose it. Um, just simple. Not that I knew what I was doing. My my dad liked it for that reason. For him, it was kind of like a project car, and he was really excited about that. We'd go out and he'd he'd be hacking under the hood trying to get it uh, working. I was just kind of like passively interested in that but you know 
I was like, I, I, I was at the time I was like, I hope this is not the car that I own for that much longer. So I'm not going to invest too much time in understanding and understanding it. I definitely wish I knew more about cars now. Like not, uh, you can't know everything. There's, there's probably, probably most of the things that you would do with a car. You cannot know how to do without some pretty special expertise. And uh, so much of it is just specific to the car that you're looking at. Like where is the air filter or multiple, my car has multiple air filters. One of which you have to get out through the glove box. Um, it's like the components are just so not standardized and the layout of them is not standard at all. It's like, I, I feel like you, you, you specialize in some make of a car, the various models. You just know that manufacturer really well or a set of models. Like, I don't, I don't know how easy it is to just be a general car guy now, but I wish I knew more of the basics. You know, I wish I, um, uh, I do wish I had the space to like, if I wanted to try, try changing my own oil, it's been, it's been years, like well over 10 years since I lived anywhere. I don't think I've actually ever lived. I've always lived in apartments. I've never lived in a house where I had a driveway, like a, just a space of my own where I could like put the car up on blocks and try changing the oil myself. I'd be down to try that once. Probably once is the upper bound of the number of times I would try it, but you know, I'd like to, I'd like to know what's going on in the damn car better than I do. <clears throat> but maybe not. You know, I, like I said, I play, I played my share of Big Buck Hunter. I have no idea how that goddamn thing works. And that's, that's, that, that's fine. You know, it can get you to A to B, even if you don't know how it works. I finally placed an order for stuff on Amazon. Like I had to order a bunch of toiletries, like basically basic supplies. I had to, I had to break down, like I need shampoo, toothbrushes, tooth, like I'm going to run out of these things. And I was like, as much as I'm trying not to order things and have them shipped to me, I'm trying to minimize the number of packages I'm getting. I had to like, I had to, to buy stuff. And now they're sitting down at the front desk. I'm like, trying to figure out when the optimal time of day is to go down and, uh, you know, have a chance encounter with my face mask on and talk to the person and say, Hey, I need to carry all these packages up. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I haven't been out of my place in it's been a week now. I don't think I'm like left my apartment at all. This is so crazy. I wonder how other people are doing. I had a tricky day yesterday. Yesterday was pretty, I don't know. Like I, the thing is, like I said, I'm being very introspective. I'm going inside and you never know what you're going to get. It's like a, like a box of chocolates. Like you go inside, it's like some days you come out feeling like, oh yeah, that was great. It felt cathartic. Some days you just like, it brings you down. Like what's going on in my head? Let me go, let me go down deep and explore. And sometimes you just come out and you're like, man, I feel, I feel crappy. Yesterday was like that. I went to bed feeling like, eh, 
this whole quarantine thing, it's, uh, it's a real bummer. It's bumming me out, man. So I always know that's going to pass. It's always in the evening. I have kind of a, like, oh man, when is this going to be over? But I, I know I'm going to wake up and be just fine. Like, I'll wake up happy, dance into the kitchen and like, you know, start grinding my coffee. Yeah, I gotta figure out how to find some music that I want to dance to. What good dancing music is? I guess it doesn't matter. You can dance to anything, really. Depends on the kind of dancing you want to do. That should be my rule: no listening to music without dancing. It'll just force me to dance all the time. I should go dance on my terrace. Like go out and just boogie down. Damn the neighbors, who cares what they think? I thought it was going to rain today. It was definitely sprinkling a little bit this morning. I thought it was going to be, uh, it's been sunny the last several days. Uh, just clear blue sky, sun beating down. When going out and working on getting a melanoma on my face. It's felt wonderful. Um, but this morning looked rainy. The sun's like peeking out here and there. Here I am narrating the weather in real time. This is fascinating stuff. But you're really glad to be listening to this, aren't you? <sighs> I definitely think it's a bad idea to drink this much coffee without eating anything. I think my stomach is starting to send that signal. You know, whatever uh, whatever telegraph it uses. Beep, 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 beep. Like, eat some food, brother. Please. Suggestion noticed. Yeah, okay. I've thought about actually doing a real podcast episode on this. Like, so instead of just me blabbing for I don't know how many hours <clears throat> at a time. Uh, like actually put together something structured. So here's a topic I'm going to go over, you know, uh, make it like a trim, like 10, 15 minutes, you know, put music in there, actually properly edit it. If I had better recording equipment, I, I might actually be trying to do that here. I feel like just me speaking into my AirPods though. This, this is probably, this is probably format enough. You know, the message matches the medium. Um, actually, I think what I'd like to do is, uh, I just make a make it like a fake podcast, like make it sound legit, but like have the thing be so over the top. But just basically shoot for not sure if onion. See, you have a podcast, you say, we're going to talk about this, this thing. And it's like, that kind of sounds fake. And then like have interviews with people, get like sound clips, people saying like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I heard about this. Like get an expert on there. So like, you know, oh, I'm an expert in such and such. And yeah, this is this is my uh, professional opinion about this. But it's something just not so obviously fake like Bigfoot. Something more subtle than that. Um, 
like basically whatever the, the mockumentary equivalent for a podcast. That you're talking about something people are not quite sure if it's true or not. You know, like urban legends have to come from somewhere. Like you say, like, oh yeah, there's, there's alligators in the sewers. Let's make an episode about something like that. I think people are like, is this real? Nothing that would actually like hurt anyone. Like don't make up. Just something that is a joke. Harmless in its content. But it's just, yeah. People would be like saying, listen to this thing and tell me if you think this sounds real. I'd be Googling, looking for information about it. I don't know. I'd be, uh, that's what I want to do. I guess I wouldn't do it under here because I'm saying this and people would figure it out, but start a new podcast. It's just that and just troll people. Yeah, someday. If I think of a subject, that's what I should do. And I need better recording stuff. Every single episode of this podcast I've done so far, it's like I put in the description, every single one has like a warning. Like, this is done during the pandemic. I don't have professional recording equipment. The audio is going to suck. Please consider yourself warned. Yeah. Kind of figuring, I'm running out of ways of uh, saying that without repeating myself. But, uh, yeah, someday I'd like to have better, someday I will have better recording gear. Oh, I think I'll try and do this for real. I do like this. I really do. I really do like this. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do this with somebody. You know, the only option now would be, like, it's me talking, and you hear somebody else kind of faintly over a phone line, which, you know, you never really, you hear, start a podcast, like, oh, so-and-so, like, I love this person. They're going to be a guest on one of my favorite podcasts, and it turns out they're calling in. And have this like that that tinny phone sounding. I, I don't know why technology hasn't gotten to the point where you could record somebody over the phone and they just sound like they're right there in the room with you. Maybe not quite that good. Maybe like they're not they're in the recording studio with you. But like, why does it have to sound like the phone? Like, has has audio technology just not gotten to there? Is it not possible? I'd be surprised if that were the case. I don't know. It probably is possible, just very, very expensive. If something seems like it should be feasible, and it, and it probably is, it's just, you know, not something the average person would buy. But, yeah, to be able to do this and just have guests on. I don't know who I would have a guest. Like, who would come on this thing? Uh, I don't I don't know. Because you need an audience first. Not sure I want to go that route. I don't know. The thing is, podcasts are not indexable. It's 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 kind of like it's easy to open up a book and just very very quickly thumb around. And you kind of get a sense: Do I like this style? It's much harder to do that with like a, a television series. You have to kind of like just start it and try and figure out how long you're going to give it to prove itself to you. I mean, same thing with a podcast. You can't just dip it in the middle and say, well, is this interesting? You kind of have to just sit through it for some amount of time. And that's, it's never clear how much. Um, there was actually some movie that I was looking at on Netflix. And I was like, hmm, this sounds interesting. It looks kind of interesting. 
I won't say which one it was because I, I looked at it and I was like, this looks interesting, but really what's going on here? It's like, there's going to be some twist or some premise here. What is that? And I looked it up and it had something to do with aliens. Like at, at the end, the, the girl's like, oh yeah, um, she's an alien and gets a, you know taken up into a spaceship. And I was like, well, I'm glad that I looked this up on Wikipedia before I actually tried sitting down and watching the thing. Like that's precisely the point. Like when there's some some secret thing and it's just like it's about aliens. Even before I was like a hardcore rationalist, like just give me science. Like uh, like watching movies about aliens in my youth was it was so boring. I don't understand the fascination with aliens and UFOs in Area 51. Like there, 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 there are no spacecraft coming to visit us, people. I hate to break it to you. I mean, the great, the great Richard Feynman put it perfectly. I mean, he said like, the, the really, when did we start believing in UFOs? It was right around the time we realized how big the universe is, and we start. We start saying, you know what we can do? We can build spaceships. Technology could feasibly allow us to build spaceships and travel to other worlds. As soon as we start doing it ourselves, as soon as these ideas become commonplace in our culture, wham, suddenly there are visitors from other planets coming down in spacecraft to visit us. Suddenly these stories, you know, come up. We start saying, oh yeah, there's unidentified objects in the sky. They must be visitors from another planet. This didn't happen before we conceived of building spaceships ourselves. As a matter of fact, there's only one science fiction movie where that actually is taken into account. It would be the day the Earth stood still. So why are the aliens visiting us? Because we just learned how to travel through, we're, we're exploring the possibility of venturing into space. They're coming down and saying like, hey, you guys are pretty messed up as a species. Just so you know, um, we're going to take measures if you guys start doing space exploration. Because uh, we feel a little threatened by you. Our intergalactic peace, you know, treaty. It was actually like a feature of the story itself. It's the only alien film I've ever seen, a film about extraterrestrial contact, where that was that was the reason they were coming to visit, is precisely because. But yeah, like this, that's precisely the point. Like, if, It's very unlikely that aliens would come to visit us right now. Like more than likely, if, if there are aliens out there, and they're going to visit our planet, they would have happened to have stumbled upon it, oh, I don't know, millions of years ago. This, this sort of came along and they're like, oh, okay, you know. And uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't catch us. They wouldn't catch intelligent life forms. You know, we're probably not going to be around for that much longer. Uh, nature will start over, you know, uh, most life will die out. Whatever manages to survive will, you know, um, kind of evolve, mutate. Eventually some organism may evolve to fill the cognitive niche that we currently occupy. Is it niche? Niche? I hear both. But yeah. 
that'd be a fascinating experiment to run over and over again. If you could do something repeatedly and just see what happens as a simulation, like a mass extinction event, which I, I guess we're, I guess we're currently running that experiment, whether we want to or not, but just mass, mass extinction of species. Just enough life survives in, in simple forms, like the cockroaches, bacteria, you know, a few things survive in isolated pockets. And once the planet becomes habitable, um, or if it's uninhabitable to current life forms, basically life evolves that is habitable in that new environment. That however the ecosystem stabilizes after we're gone, uh, life begins to flourish again. Like it, it, it would take like a several million years for it to reach its current uh, level of uh, diversity and and uh, complexity, but it would it would get there again. And it will. Like just being able to do that. Like let's just let life run on this planet for uh, tens of millions of years and come back and see like, oh yeah, so what does it look like now? What What is a... Uh... Be interesting to see what happened. Like who who occupies... I don't know, I try to think like, what, what... It depends on what organisms survive. But uh, a friend of mine pointed out that cats could do that. It wouldn't necessarily have to be house cats, uh, but just cats in general. Like cats have a, cats definitely have a kind of intelligence. They are smart. Um, try to imagine like if they, if they developed consciousness, intelligence, the way we have it, like if that made evolutionary sense at some point, you know, what would they, what would they, what could they evolve into? But I mean, at the, anywhere in the mammal kingdom, you could look for, um, you know, you could look at it and say, well, yeah, that, that could develop a, a brain, you know, rats. It could, it could come from anywhere. Like we all have a common ancestor. At some point, there's like one mammal. If you look up the uh, the common ancestor of cats and dogs, which is interesting to think about, but there's like some possum weasel looking thing uh, that lived like, I want to say 60 million years ago. But they figured out that is the common ancestor. Like that branched and the lineages went on to give us the domestic house cat and the domestic dog. And, and all cats and dogs, you know. Uh, for that matter. But yeah, we, there's there's some mammal, probably some rat-looking thing that is uh, the common ancestor to us all. Yeah, what is it, Wednesday? Hump day. Believe it or not, days, days still have a feel for me. I'm kind of, I kind of was wondering how long do I have to be unemployed before I stop like just having a, a, a sense of what day it is. The thing is, I know um, I'm not working, but I've, I worked for so long for so many years and it's just been ingrained in me that I'd actually do have like some internal circadian rhythm. Like I, I just know. Um, I don't know if that would keep up if I wasn't like using a computer and it's just right there in my face, like in the upper 
right hand corner of the screen, like it is Wednesday. You know, at what point do I just lose sight of that if it's not in my face? But even sitting around unemployed during this pandemic, it's like I, I know what I know what day it is, and each day has a different feel. It's like if I'm just sitting around in the sunshine, not doing anything. It's like Friday. I start feeling like you know, I feel fine about this. It's Friday, you know. Hey, the weekend's almost here. Saturday, I just sit around like, hey, there's there's no reason I have to do anything. I feel no responsibility or obligation whatsoever. I just rest. You know, Sunday's the same. I don't feel bad, but there's this like creeping sense that like, you know, maybe you should start looking for a job. And it's just like Monday. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just I can't enjoy sitting around. Like, there's some there's some sense like I'm supposed to be doing something right now. Not just like kind of there's that cycle. I still have the, the the weekly cycle to things, even though I'm not working at all. Just have that like corporate mentality instilled in me. You're a working stiff. I wonder how long I'd have to like if I if I would if I didn't have to work and I just left and started I, I don't know what I would do. That's a, that's a question I've never been able to answer. If I wasn't working, what would I do? This is just how tied up I am to my to my job, to having a job, to being like that's that's what you do. Um, but yeah, I don't know what I would do. Go surf. Another thing I would like to do, like I, I kind of got a taste of this when I was in Palo Alto. Like uh, what I did was I, when I first arrived in Silicon Valley, I booked an Airbnb in Palo Alto, uh, just for the purposes of being close to where I was gonna work. I was gonna, I was interviewing at the time, so it was it was tentative. But the guy who was uh, running the Airbnb, he happened to be going on leave from his job he was taking the leave of absence for some months and he was like hey as long as you're like thinking of relocating here do you want to take over my room you just have to turn down the other you know the other two rooms um he he let me live in his room for a song which worked out for about a year and a half i was there uh but just like running that turning down beds kind of keeping things stocked you know cleaning, whatever. I actually enjoyed doing that. And it wasn't like I lived in a very picturesque place. It was just in the middle of, uh, you know, very suburban Palo Alto, Um, kind of by some commercial stuff. But, you know, it's, if you're coming to visit Silicon Valley, like as a tourist, you want the tourist experience, that was not where you stayed. It was like, if you want to like, you're a, you know, if you're a student at Stanford, if you have some reason to go to Stanford, you can crash there. It's perfect for that reason. But uh, it definitely wasn't the full Silicon Valley experience. Um, but the idea of like having a bed and breakfast somewhere, like not necessarily an Airbnb, but having like a nice like themed house. I think if, if I had to pick, it would be like a log cabin, like a very, like a wood motif, like a fireplace, a stone fireplace. 
Um, <clears throat> just having that somewhere, you know, somewhere picturesque, somewhere that would be nice, a nice little retreat. And you just, uh, yeah, you show people around. People are like, so, you know, you're kind of like the concierge. Maybe you're not the tour guide, but people are saying like, so we're visiting, we're, we're visiting the city. What do we go do? And you just kind of, you know, point them to things. Maybe strike up conversation. Maybe just make them some food. I kind of thought I would enjoy doing that. I, I don't think I would set out to do that now. That's kind of like maybe in my 60s or 70s. Uh, if I'm settled down somewhere, I could I could set that up. I think I would enjoy that. Just meeting people as they came through. Maybe I enjoy that now. I don't know. Um, not sure where I would go and do it though. Um, it'd be something to do in San Francisco. I, I, apparently on Airbnb, you can go have experiences too. Like not just, I need a place to sleep for the night. There are tour guides. You can, you can do like, I'm going to do this Airbnb experience. Like give me a tour of this part of San Francisco, you know, go do a stairway walk or two. Um, that's kind of cool. There's an organization uh, called City Guides, which is affiliated with the San Francisco Public Library. I learned about recently. They, they just, they're history buffs who get training in San Francisco history. And then they, they give free tours uh, of the different neighborhoods, um, parks, landmarks. Um, you could just show up to these. You know, you don't have to book a reservation uh, unless you're a big tour group. And they'll just, yeah, tell you all about what uh, what the history of these things is. Like, there's just a bunch of volunteers that do that. I thought that was really cool. Um, I signed up to do that, but they only offer training in January. And outside of that, you, you basically have to catch that time period. Since it's, you know, it's now April, almost May. I've got some time to prepare, but I, I have been reading about uh, the history of San Francisco, just sort of in, in anticipation of that. It would be uh, be cool to like give those sorts of tours. Um, don't know if I'd be any good at it. I definitely, you can't tell from listening to this, I definitely don't have the most charismatic presentation for things. Like I'm pretty, I might know my facts, at times about certain things, but I definitely have trouble dressing it up, you know, in, in, a, in an engaging and presentable way, you know. Uh, of course, presentation is nine-tenths. It's all about showmanship. I think that is something that I sorely lack in most of my uh, endeavors. I can stand to dress that up. Just gotta dance like an idiot. Just dance, man. Wake up the imagination. Yeah, I really, I really do appreciate that. Like if learning something like magic, I wouldn't want to be a magician, but just being able to know misdirection would be an interesting trick to be familiar with and be able to employ. I wonder if that has applications outside of outside of magic. If it's, it's, it's the basic psychology of doing that has. Uh, other applications. I don't know where you, I can't think of where that would be useful. You go into 7-Eleven to buy something, you like, 
you managed to sneak out with extra stuff you swiped from the register because you knew how to, I, I don't know. I don't know where it would, maybe that wouldn't be a useful skill, but it would be nice to like have more charisma. Whenever you look at like, there, there are things that will tell you here is how you can have, how you can be more charismatic. And it tends to be, you should be willing to put your, you know, your focus on the other person, ask them about their interests. Like, yeah, tell me about you, you know, but you have to, there's a little bit more to it than that. I, I've been doing that for years. And if you, if you do nothing but ask questions and focus on the other person and let them talk, I mean, it, it kind of just becomes you're shouldering, you're not shouldering, you're part of the burden of having the conversation. You're just like, people don't want to just talk about themselves endlessly. They want some back and forth. And I've, um, I've fallen too far the other way. When I meet people, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, tell me about you. I want to hear about you. And I, I genuinely do. It's not a tactic. Um, but I've sort of just like learned to shrink away from talking about myself. Um, just because I've tried to go too far in the other direction, like you focus on the other person. Like charisma, you need something more than that. Uh, not just, I'm interested in you. And besides, that certainly doesn't scale to a group. Like being able to stand you can't, you can't focus your attention too intensely on any one person when you're in a, in a group setting. It's kind of, each person has to like take turns shining for the group in their own way. Um, yeah, that's definitely where I'm lacking. Like who am I in a group situation if I'm not connecting with one other person deeply? Um, Yeah, that, that, that's the situation in which I would say I don't really have a personality. I have a personality. I would certainly say that. Um, but when I'm in a group, it's kind of like I don't know. I don't know who that part of me really is. Yeah. Showmanship. Don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how important that is if you're giving like historical tours in a city. You want to be engaging, but I don't know if you have to be like a, uh, I don't know, like a Las Vegas entertainer. I don't think you need to be that next level. If you could do that that well, you probably wouldn't be giving free tours of the history of a city. I can't imagine that attracts, you know, the, the most, uh, I'm sure some of them are bubbly, but yeah, it's probably a mixed bag. Yeah, okay. Maybe time for me to eat something. Maybe time to figure out how I can uh, work off this coffee, this surplus of caffeine that I have. I've got to figure out how to metabolize this for the rest of the day, make use of this energy. Maybe I'll come back and record some more. But for, for the time being, I think I've talked long enough. This one is uh, getting up towards two hours. I'm going to cut it off and say, hey, this has been great. If you've been listening, thanks. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day, everyone. It's going to be a wonderful day. And wherever you are, I'm sorry we're living through this pandemic. It sucks, but it's going to clear up soon. It's going to, we're going to make it through it. We're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's great. Everything's just great.
yeah, so wherever you are, I hope you're, I hope you're healthy. I hope you're doing well. Remain so. Take care of each other. And uh, yeah, until next time, this is Jim uh, signing off. Cheerio.